The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Frank Latuka, Olin and Angela, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for November 20th, 2020, 11, 20, 20. This is your boy, Justin Robert Young, joining you on the last day of political vacation. I know. I know, I know, I know. It's been uh, too short, too short for you guys to be able to be be here with me. We're all together, at least in our minds, enjoying a little bit of a decompression from the the ongoing craziness when it comes to our election system. I got some chips and salsa on the way here. If you guys, uh, if you guys want some, uh, yes, thank you, sir. Of course, enjoy. There we go. There we go. We got a hell of a show here for you. We got another vaccine. More good vaccine news. This has been a very good week for vaccine news, and we have another on the way. We're going to do a little check-in, coronavirus-wise, on our governors. Oh, the govs are at it again. We got a little controversy in California with Governor Newsom. We've got, uh, uh, oh, these two. This comedy duo... Uh, you know, it never, it never fails to kill. And by that, I mean still the highest death toll in America because they can't get their act together. Oh, wackity schmackity, Cuomo and de Blasio are at it again. And uh, we have a new Oxford study that I actually think that uh, folks should keep an eye on. A, 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 a Oxford study that is comparing how much... Government restriction has led to caseload and deaths for COVID-19 within the United States of America. And they have some findings that I think folks would find interesting. All that and the mailbag. And we have a great interview about solutions to the Supreme Court. Our Friday interviews, we like to make them a little thinky. And this is a good thinky one solutions to the Supreme Court that either of which you've heard publicly. Like, these are outside-the-box ideas that I think are fascinating. We will get to them in a second. Bird first! We have another vaccine, we have another vaccine, we have, we have, we have another vaccine. A COVID-19 vaccine from Oxford University. A lot of Oxford in this podcast. Big shout out to the OX. Does anybody from Oxford ever just throw up like the X, like like DMX or anything? Has anyone ever done that from Oxford? 
If you're from Oxford and you ever thrown up the X, go ahead and email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Oxford University and AstraZeneca, uh, uh, they say that their vaccine is indeed safe and produces strong immune responses in older people based on preliminary findings of their Phase 2 trial published in The Lancet. Coronavirus cases are soaring in the United States and across the world, of course. And so, therefore, the finding of the study of 560 healthy adults, including 250 aged over 70, is great news. This, of course, follows Pfizer's announcement Wednesday that it is 95% effective and Moderna's announcement that they are 94.5% effective. There are also very, very few side effects. And, quote, volunteers in the trial demonstrate similar neutralizing antibody T-trace and T-cell responses across across all three age groups of 18 to 55, 56 to 90, uh, sorry, 56 to 79, and 70 plus. Uh, This is going to be uh, something that will, uh, will be monitored very, very closely. Uh, obviously, any kind of vaccine news is good news. We will see whether or not this is something that, uh, you know, will make its way to Americans in, in the same speed as both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines will. Looks like those are on track to possibly hit our earliest responders within the next few weeks, which would be a tremendous, tremendous uh, a step forward. And, you know, we can only help as we watch these cases spike around the country, hope that there is some level of relief on the way. I, I hate to go back to it because I know I'm just going to be relitigating it. But my God, you know, for 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 the sitting president to not have just made this the forward and repeated thing uh, in 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 explaining to America his solution to COVID is just to say testing so we know where it is. Look at our robust testing. Yes, we have a lot of cases. That just means our eyes are open. If anywhere else around the country or around the world doesn't show as many cases, then either look at their testing or look at their freedom of press. Uh, uh, You can know my freedom of press here in America because of how much I get roasted by you, jokers. Waka waka. Uh, But nothing is going to be normal in the world until we have a vaccine. And the United States is leading the world in not only vaccine research. Like the idea that 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 he fought over masks, he fought over Dr. Fauci, and not on those two things. Mother of Pearl. Mother of Pearl. Let's talk about some local government, though. Uh, uh, The Govs, well, they're at it again, friends. Uh, uh, Gavin Newsom, who obviously has, you know, he is somebody that uh, will, will... be a factor in our national politics, especially considering that Kamala Harris, one of uh, uh, his his besties, is now uh, in in tremendous positions of power within not only the Democratic Party, but also the federal government. He uh, has a bit of a scandal on his hands. 
photos obtained by Fox LA of Gavin Newsom at a dinner party in Napa that he said was outdoors. It appears as if it was indoors with a sliding glass door that was at some part uh, at some point open and then closed at some point. Uh, this is at the world famous French Laundry restaurant, something that takes, you know, oftentimes for for a normie, weeks to months to years to get a reservation. Apparently, Gavin Newsom was joined by members of his health team, the team that is setting health policies for the state of California, the same health policies that have. Uh, again, impose lockdown restrictions up to and including the closing of gyms and uh, indoor dining throughout California. When I come back to uh, when I come back to uh, 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 my home in Oakland, I will no longer be able to go to my gym. My gym was closed. They were in there. And if the door was closed, it would be violating their own health guidelines. Is this the biggest thing in the world? No. Is this an example of a rules for thee but not for me hypocritical situation? Indeed. And uh, Newsom is indeed dealing with it as such. What I find to be more horrifying is what's happening in New York. I have uh, gotten criticized here on this program for being too harsh on the governor of New York, Governor Cuomo. I have called him the worst governor on coronavirus. I, uh, I, I've, I've been told by scientific people in the know that I'm being too harsh. That it is something for which if, yes, they got it uh, uh, really, really bad, but they learned a lot of lessons. Now we know those lessons. The fact that New York suffered through those lessons is a good thing for the rest of the world, not even just America. And that I should ease off. Yes, he's got the biggest mountain of dead bodies. Yes, he made mistakes when it came to nursing homes that actively killed people, but I need to lay off. And so I have. I have. The one thing that I have not laid off, though, is that the ultimate problem that I've had with both New York City and New York State is that it was not a secret that current mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, hates the governor, Governor Cuomo. And the governor hates the mayor back. And that is, you know, a, a, a fun Tom and Jerry act during peacetime. It is a very, 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 very big problem when you are facing the kind of issues that you have in New York City during a pandemic when, as I've been reminded a million times, that there is a massive population density issue that is going to make these problems more severe. And so we saw yet again the fact that this pandemic has now raged on for months and months 
And in the intervening time, Governor Cuomo has released a book about how well he's handled the coronavirus pandemic, that still, this central problem has not been dealt with. And so, while Mayor de Blasio said that he would not shut down schools despite rising cases in New York City, the governor came out and overruled him. This is something that has been shredded by the editorial board of the New York Daily News. Now, remember that in New York City, amongst the two tabloids, the New York Post tends to lean Republican. The Daily News tends to lean Democrat. But all politics are local, and nobody appreciates the fact that the mayor of the most populous city in America and the governor of that state for which it is in can get on the same page. This is not just an issue that is about who can win more headlines. De Blasio's already failed to run for president once. I'm sure Cuomo will get around to failing to run for president at some other point. But the lack of coordination from these two people when they hold so many millions of lives in the balance is sickening to me. I really do think it's awful. It is repugnant. And if there's ever a moment that we should at least look at these two guys, again, in the same party, and demand cooperation, well, I would say for everybody that is in New York City and state, uh, uh, we, we should all hope that this is the case. Now, Let's swing back over to Oxford. X. D. M. X. Yo. Oxford. <laughs> I don't know why. What D Oxford should give DMX an honorary degree. If you agree with that, give X a degree. Hashtag give X a degree. Let's get it trending. Tag Oxford. Uh, Oxford has a COVID-19 government response tracker. It is uh, tracking worldwide how all governments are handling this particular issue. And this week, they uh, released data measuring policy responses to the pandemic across all 50 U.S. states. The tracker has highlighted the, August, or sorry, the, the July to August surge in some of the states which rolled back restrictions in May and June. And the tracker systemically records government responses to the coronavirus worldwide on 17 indicators such as school closures and travel restrictions and allows those to be plotted against coronavirus cases and deaths. It aggregates policy responses uh, into indices between 1 and 100 to reflect the level of government action, providing a containment and health index showing how many and how forceful the measures to contain the virus and protect citizen health are. The economic support index, showing the index of economic support that has been made available. A stringency index, which records strictness of lockdown-style policies. And an overall government response index, which shows government response has either become stronger or weaker over the case of the outbreak. As you might imagine, Democratic cities and, or, sorry, Democratic states and states that voted for Hillary Clinton have had higher government intervention indexes very recently 
the cases have now, in, in Republican states, Republican-run states and states that voted for Donald Trump, have now overtaken the cases that have been in Democratic-run states. So the headlines that went around yesterday when all this came to light were that, oh, this shows that Democratic-run states have done a better job. And they may very well have. The one thing that I would say is that I would like to see where these numbers are in the spring for one reason. Testing is the lifeblood of how we understand this disease. And widespread testing, the likes of which that was in existence during July and August, will now be available in the northern states, specifically the, 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 the northeastern corridor, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, states that are democratically run, and we will see exactly how they spread during cold winter months where more people are gathered inside. In the same way that in hot summer months, a lot of the uh, uh, southeastern corridor, Georgia, Florida, Texas, southwestern states like Arizona saw spikes during the summer months when it's very hot outside and people are gathering indoors a lot more. So I would call for all PX3 listeners to just keep watching this. I think that this is a very, very cool uh, resource, and I would encourage everybody to head on over to bsg.ox.ac.uk, and I'll throw this in the show notes as well. But there we go. Your government and COVID update. Politics. They ask me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. You can always write into the mailbag, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We begin with Cornelius. He says, uh, here's my take on Trump running again. Just like Trump registered his 2020 campaign on the day of the 2017 inauguration, he will register his 2024 run around this time or that time next year. And here are the reasons. He can continue his campaign campaign donation grift seamlessly. He can frame any investigation into him as a political move to sabotage his 2024 re-election. He can hold apprentice-style contests about who gets to be his running mate. He can get more media attention this way, and he forces other Republicans into opposing him for moral leadership, thus keeping the GOP bound to his goodwill. Now, that doesn't mean that, say, come 2023, he might not decide to play kingmaker by endorsing somebody, but this way it will be up for him to decide. I think that is very, very, very... Uh, plausible to me, Cornelius. David writes in a little bit more fantastical terms. I think that in 2024 that Trump runs for re-election to Speaker of the House. Here's the timeline. The what? The Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House? Here's the timeline. 2021, he leaves office, moves to Florida, starts a podcast, and interviews every Republican congressman that wants that wants to get on, plus rants for two hours about the Biden-Harris-Pelosi uh, cabal are horrible. 2022, he runs for Congress in Florida in his home district, which is a swing district currently occupied by a Democrat. He raises an insane amount of money and promises to run for speaker, assuming he is elected and that Republicans will win the majority. He helps fundraise and campaign for every Republican running for Congress. 
2023. He wins his congressional campaign and the speakership, and the Republicans keep the Senate. He passes a lot of bills that are signed by the Senate and vetoed by Biden. He will support whoever the presidential nominee is without officially endorsing anybody, but will offer constant commentary. 2024, a re-election as speaker? Question mark. All right. Initially, I thought you were crazy, David. And I still probably think you're crazy. But what I don't think is crazy is the idea that he would be a very, very, very good Speaker of the House if we are only defining Speaker of the House by somebody who can raise money. Because that man would raise an insane amount of money. Just a ridiculous, insane, just oodles and oodles of cash for anybody down ballot. Now, he would be an insane lightning rod. The Democrats would raise a lot of cash. This might be the way, if all we're doing is tracking campaign fundraising, the way that the most amount of money comes in to congressional candidates is if Donald Trump follows David's lead and becomes Speaker of the House. Alex writes, I'd have thought, not sure if it's been debated yet, what if Trump is getting his base all riled up over voter fraud backfires in Georgia? It's already a state Trump complains was rigged. What if his lazier supporters believe it is rigged and they stay home in January? If I believe that my vote didn't count and it was rigged, I'd stay home and play video games. If they lose, brother, you are going to hear that a lot. Payne writes, hey, jury, love the latest interview about voting demographics. One question I would love to potentially address as a follow-up is how generational differences might be shaping up in different minority communities. For example... Young versus old black voters and the feelings on how to defund the police. Payne, I would agree with you. I I think the larger question there is what is the propensity for young voters to vote? And then as they get older, do their opinions change? Or does their age change? (laughs) So, like... Do the attitudes that come from young minority voters filter up to older minority voters? That would be the question. And again, that's not a question that we can answer right now. Mike says, thank you for being one of the political outlets that I consider fair, honest, and entertaining. I was wondering, if you had a favorite source for deep diving in the statistics of the election, I love to look at the breakdown of age, race, and gender, but finding a good source can be tough since I keep hearing contradicting stats thrown at me. So anytime you see a poll, and this is something that I do rely on like real clear politics for, uh, they usually show the, the link of the poll itself will go to the press release. And at that point, you just kind of dive into the cross tabs and you can see the actual breakdown of question by question of who votes for what. But when I was like citing uh, uh, Latino voting demographics and stuff like that during the election, that's where I was getting them from. I wish I had a better, cleaner resource for it. But unfortunately, the, the vast majority of our statistical media is based on synthesizing these numbers and coming up with prettier, rounder numbers as opposed to just giving us a gigantic dump of, of exactly th- that kind of nitty-gritty that you're looking for. Gary writes, So, what are you going to do about the fact that half the country appears to think that the other half are evil communists who plan to force everyone to have an abortion? 
Meanwhile, we commie abortion pushers uh, think that everybody else is racist, ignorant, or stupid for supporting a rude, narcissistic sociopath and his toadies who don't give an S about anybody making less than seven figures. I despair that any kind of dialogue can open up because neither side accepts the other's premises. How can we get away from the us versus them to just us? Well, the funniest part about those uh, 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 dividing lines, and we saw this even in the, in the mailbag yesterday, or sorry, last week, was that there's also a line between who is fighting for the working class. Both parties claim that, that, that they are fighting for the working class, that they are fighting for the lower uh, economic strata. So until we can, I mean, I, I think the only idea here is that we agree on some level on common facts, which right now we're not. So I don't know if this is just a natural cycle of a bifurcation and a bubbling of our media that eventually kind of reforms into something that is, that there is a common clearinghouse that we can, that we can all draw from. I would, I would assume that that's the natural path, but I don't think we're anywhere close to that right now. So I'll selfishly say that the biggest solution is that this podcast becomes the biggest one on the planet and all other political podcasts, all other partisan political podcasts fall below politics, politics, politics in, in stature. That you go here first and you listen to me as I do my best and then you can go get all riled up on your side. But in the process, enrich me. I, I would really like for you to enrich me first. And finally, middle-aged Mike writes, speaking as a recently retired 25-year veteran of the U.S. Army, regarding a spiteful withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, it is logistically impossible to withdraw all U.S. military from Af Afghanistan in 42 days. Just giving the intent and order to the commands uh, will uh, initiate a minimum of 7 to 10 days of staffing on how to complete the task at the highest level. This is followed by a minimum of five to seven days for the subordinate units to respond to the feasibility of the plan and revising it, then a 10 to 14 days of moving assets into place to facilitate the pullouts, plus seven to 10 days to pack, load, and start leaving. If you take into account the facilities we've constructed and equipment that can't be evacuated during that timeline and turning, turning them over properly instead of just outright abandoning them, as the U.S. had to do in Vietnam in certain places, that costs a lot of cash. In my opinion, there is absolutely no way that we can leave before Christmas and the generals and Pentagon staff will drag their feet and go through the motions, but nothing will happen. Military bureaucracy is a bitch. Well, yeah. I agree. Uh, I, I, I don't ever believe that there is anything that the Pentagon could possibly. Uh, uh, there's no task that could take five minutes that the Pentagon can't stretch to five years. And I don't believe that they want to remove their uh, forces from Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or Libya or anywhere else for that matter. The best that the Trump administration would be able to do is just make put this process as far along as they can that would make it politically damaging for Biden to try and reverse it. All right, that will wrap it up for us today uh, on the mailbag. So, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com right in right now.
All right, guys, real quick break to remind everybody that the way this show gets funded is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you're only listening to this episode, then you didn't hear the episode that happened yesterday on Thursday where I broke down the entire Rudy Giuliani press conference and laid out what I thought was reasonable, what I thought was barely reasonable, and what I thought was total crazy pants with silly sauce. You would have gotten that in your custom RSS feed if you were a member of the $3 Club. So head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Make sure during this maddening time you are never without the information that you need from a trusted friend. Ah, yes. The serene voice of me, Justin Robert Young. I don't always talk like this. But maybe I should. Hey, everybody. What's going on? Who wants to talk about some politics? What accent is this? I don't even know. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Our guest today are going to bring us a different perspective on how we can solve our Supreme Court problem. They are Ganesh Sitaraman. He is a professor of law at Vanderbilt University and the author of The Great Democracy. You can follow him on Twitter at Ganesh Sitaraman. Daniel Epps will also join us. He is an associate professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis and a former clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy. He's a nationally recognized expert on the Supreme Court. and You can follow him at Dan Epps on Twitter. And they join us right now. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Great Uh, to be here. Now, let's let's just uh, uh, get clear for everybody that are are listening here. Uh, 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 Daniel, uh, uh, welcome uh, to the show. If you could just uh, give everybody a a taste of your voice here. This is my beautiful voice. (laughs) And Ganesh. Hi, everyone. Uh, Glad to be here. So let's start here. Uh, Dan... Uh, the, the, the conversation that dominated not only some of the run up to the, the Senate races in the wake of the Amy Coney Barrett appointment was expansion of the court or packing of the court. Can you just give us a, a basic rundown on what that would mean practically and the history, uh, of, or, or precedent thereof, of, of doing something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say at the outset that court expansion is one way to reform the court, but it's not the only way to reform the court. And we've talked about, um, Ganesh and I have talked about some other proposals, and we'll, we can get into that later. But um, court expansion is the idea that Congress could just add seats to the court. And um, it seems to be pretty universally agreed that that would be constitutional because the constitution doesn't say how big the Supreme Court has to be. Its size has actually varied um, a fair bit over the years. It started out at six. It's been as high as 10, uh, although it has been set at nine since um, 1869, so about 150 years. And there was one attempt to change its size in the FDR presidency in 1937, um, but that that effort failed uh, politically and it hasn't really been touched since. But I think a lot of Democrats feel like the tactics that Republicans have used in order to um, get their nominees on the Supreme Court have been unfair, uh, underhanded, norm-breaking. And so um, their response is to say, well, why don't we address that? Um, Why don't we retaliate by adding seats to the court, which would counteract um, what they've done in terms of packing the court um, with, uh, you know, 
conservative Republican justices. And very controversial. Um, uh, a lot of people say it would, it would, you know, the Republican argument is that it would really, really destroy norms. It would, it would create a sort of cycle whereby uh, each side would con- would add justices every time they took power. Um, although it's not, it's not 100% clear that that would necessarily happen. Um, but it's very controversial. You know, it has happened at various points in American history, as I said. Um, and there are at least some historians say that when it was when it happened, it was done for partisan reasons in order to affect the balance of power on the court. Um, although that's a little bit controversial, and it hasn't, as I said, it hasn't happened for quite some time. Uh, Ganesh, is there a reason why it stayed so stable for 150 years? Is there is there anything that we had that we might be uh, uh, close to losing, or or is is fragile at this moment? Well, I think as as Dan mentioned, there was an attempt to change the the number in the FDR presidency, and when that attempt uh, didn't succeed. Um, people really lined up with just thinking that this is a, a workable system for now. Um, it, 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 uh, the number didn't really need to change. Um, and a lot of people started thinking that that was really a moment that suggested this, the size of the court would be a kind of entrenched norm, one that was going to stay with us for a much longer period of time and, and probably that we shouldn't change um, in that moment. Um, it, it is worth noting, though, that part of the reason why there was a kind of stable equilibrium around keeping the size at nine after the FDR era attempt to change the size of the court is that the court really changed its own views in the FDR uh, presidency. Um, What happened when that approach failed was uh, that there was a swing justice on the court who had been striking down major elements of the New Deal and then started upholding them. Um, And so there wasn't this big clash between the Supreme Court and the Democratic majorities in Congress and and the presidency um, during FDR's uh, presidency. And over time, that kind of New Deal constitutional uh, consensus persisted uh, for many decades. Um, And and that's part of why there wasn't a big controversy over the court and over its size was because actually the court moved in, in what it was doing. Uh, Dan, you mentioned that you guys have uh, put forth some other court reform ideas. Can you run us through a few of those? Yeah. So the two um, that we laid out are called um, the Supreme Court Lottery and the Balance Bench. And the basic idea of the Supreme Court Lottery is let's um, make uh, the process of appointing justices of the Supreme Court a little bit less charged by just making uh, having each justice be less important by having a lot more of them. So the idea is we take all of the judges um, on the United States Courts of Appeals, of which there's maybe 150 or so, um, and uh, change the the law so that they could all be Supreme Court justices. And then the Supreme Court would just hear cases uh, in randomly assigned panels. So any given justice on the Supreme Court is maybe only gonna hear cases for a week uh, out of the year, um, and it's gonna have much less influence over the court's uh, jurisprudence. And the alternative um, that we proposed, uh, and there's there's more to say about that one, obviously. Sure, it's, yeah. There's more complexity, but just the high-level overview. The other one is the balance bench. And the idea there is um, you'd have a Supreme Court with a certain amount of partisan balance built into it. So there would be five seats that are in some way kind of connected to, affiliated with the Democratic Party, five seats on the court that are in some way affiliated with the Republican Party. And then those 10 justices collectively would have to designate five more justices who would be called up from the lower courts. 
otherwise the court would not have a quorum. And the idea there is the justices would have an incentive to select um, uh, judges from the lower courts who were kind of seen as uh, fair, uh, even-handed, um, non-ideological, non-partisan. Uh, and so you'd get a court that would be um, a little bit less, maybe a little bit less clearly divided on partisan lines, even though you're using the tools of partisan identification to reach that role, that goal. Uh, those are both very, very interesting. And the second one, I think, is is something that I, I'm very, very curious about because, and, and Ganesh, I'll direct this to you, one of the most interesting parts of any kind of Supreme Court discussion to me is that they are always universally, at least in my lifetime, on totally partisan lines. They are very politically charged. They raise a lot of money and get a lot of people to the polls. They're a tremendous motivator. And yet the justices themselves are, are you know, to, to hear more scholarly discussion about it, they're not talking about it on a conservative or liberal line. They are talking about things on a uh, originalist or uh, a, a living constitutionalist uh, a kind of uh, argument. And I, I, I guess, do either of these solutions that you guys have put forth uh, uh, which one is is the most keyed into maybe sort of breaking this idea that there is a one to one liberal to conservative originalist to uh, uh, living constitutionalist kind of mind frame? So, so part of what we tried to do is really start from that premise um, that part of the crisis and challenge to the court's legitimacy at this point is exactly what you described: the alignment of ideology with partisanship. And it's really worth pointing out that that's not something that's been common in modern American history. You know, when I mentioned, when we talked earlier about FDR and having uh, the Supreme Court strike down parts of the New Deal, um, there were some Democrats who were in the majority striking that down. It wasn't all Republicans. Uh, you know, it was a Republican uh, who wrote the decision in Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, there was a Republican who wrote the decision in Roe versus Wade. There was a Democrat who dissented in Roe versus Wade. Um, so, so we've had this kind of different approach over time, but right now we're in a place where the ideology of the justices really does align with the partisanship of the president that appointed them, um, and that it makes the court itself more polarized. And so part of what our both of our solutions were designed to do was, was try to address that. Um, so the balanced bench really harnesses that insight to try to, you know, use partisanship to disarm partisanship. Um, and by requiring both sides, the four Republican-approved uh, justices and the four, uh, the, the, sorry, the five Republican and five Democratic-approved justices to come together and choose five others um, is really a forcing mechanism. And, you know, I think some people would say, well, that's super naive. They're never going to be able to agree. But actually what we saw in 20, uh, what we saw just a few years ago in, 20, in 2016, um, when there were only eight justices on the court was a lot of consensus. A lot yeah. more narrower decisions and a lot of consensus. And so we think there is a possibility for getting to some of that um, if we use their partisanship in a way against them uh, to try to force them into, into creating these compromises. The thing that I like the most about both of your solutions uh, are that they are very chaotic and they don't lend particularly well to fundraising emails because I, I think that that is a huge part of, of why we have uh, the noise around the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and let me just ask this to you, Dan. It, you, you, uh, Ganesh mentioned that that obviously there is an, an alignment between partisanship 
in a political sense and the judicial philosophies of the appointees, maybe it's just for me uh, watching from uh, afar without much of a knowledge of of the exact philosophies of these justices. But it does seem that the further away that a justice gets from their appointment, the easier it is to kind of forget who appointed them and and be maybe surprised by the fact that, oh, this was a Bush appointee that upheld Obamacare, for example, with with like Justice Roberts. Is that a real phenomenon or just that something that's in my head? That is a real phenomenon. It's something that political scientists call drift. Um, and it has been documented that there have been a number of justices who have moved away from the ideology that you would expect. They start out conservative, move liberal. Um, it's been a little bit more likely to go in that direction than the opposite direction. Um, I, but I also think it's, uh, and there's many, many reasons you come up with to explain that. Um, uh, but I do think it's something that we may be less likely to see in the future. Um, in the sense that, uh, at least on the Republican side, a big part of what they've been doing is trying to figure out ways to identify candidates um, for whom that won't be an issue. Um, so this very famously happened with with Justice Souter, who I, I think basically they just kind of, kind of got confused there and they thought he was some great conservative. And it turned out he was just very much a liberal and joined the court's liberal bloc within a few years of joining the court. And the motto uh, of that movement has been no more suitors. Yeah. Um, so really, really careful vetting, screening, um, using organizations like the Federal Society. Um, and kind of really trying to build sort of an, a, a different kind of legal community for conservatives to try to identify the kind of candidates that really, really deeply are committed to these principles in their bones. So drift is going to be less likely for them. Uh, so even though, you know, I, I think there, there were at least reports that, that some of the Gorsuch decisions that were made over the last term were not particularly well liked by by the Trump administration. And, and uh, uh, you know, we saw at least... Uh, Kavanaugh uh, come in on a fairly weak challenge, I guess, this week uh, to Obamacare and and uphold yeah. uphold the law there. That like that 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 would not be an example of of drift. Not necessarily. I think we don't have enough data points on either of the two of them. I do think that there is some uh, reason to think the Chief Justice has sort of tacked a little bit to the left, um, and you know, there's a, it's a whole separate conversation trying to figure out what's going on there. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think there's. You have to disentangle two things. I mean, there there are some there you know the fact that sometimes a particular justice doesn't vote in a consistently conservative direction, I think is an indication that you know what the Supreme Court does. It's this complicated mix of law and politics. Yeah. Um. And legal considerations do matter uh, in a lot of the cases. And and it's not our view that that all they're doing they're doing 100% politics. It's just that in some of the highest profile cases, politics maybe matters more than it should. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, there there were some a couple of uh, decisions by Justice Gorsuch this past term that really surprised people, uh, most notably a case called uh, Bostock, where he ruled um, that um, federal uh, anti-discrimination law applies to sexual orientation and gender identity, um, which people thought was very, very surprising, although he used kind of conservative methodology uh, to reach that. Um, reach that result. Uh, and I don't, it's hard to know, you know, whether, how to explain that, whether that's, you know, uh, he just has really kind of quirky kind of legal views that he thinks the law comes out that way, or he has strong kind of policy views that infused his vision of the law um, there. But I think we, we, we need a few more years for both him and for Justice Kavanaugh to figure out whether they're actually drifting or whether they just have a few quirky views in, yeah. in a few areas. I was just kind of assumed that it was one of those things where once you, once you get a job for life, 
you know, what are you going to do? Who's, who's, who's going to tell me anything? Uh, uh, Ganesh, go ahead. Yeah, well, so there's a couple other things that are often going on in these cases where we see or feel like we're confused about what's happening with the justices. One is that often something that on the kind of front page headline of what a case is about um, isn't actually what the case is about in a really deep legal way. And there might be big legal battles that are very important in the long run for conservatives or for liberals, but the way that the case is teed up and the thing that we see in the headlines doesn't actually reflect that. And so you might get a win for liberals on the front pages, but a loss on the deep you know, principles that are happening in the law underneath or vice versa. So th that's one thing that where there's a little bit of a, um, a trade-off where it's not obvious if a justice has moved to the left or moved to the right. It might be that it turns out they're, they're being faithful to their ideology just at a level of detail or generality that we haven't, that we're not thinking about in terms of what's publicly salient. And the other thing that happens in some of these cases, um, and I think this is particularly true historically when you look at uh, Roosevelt's judges, um, uh, is that often things in the world just change considerably. You know, you have justices who serve for 20, 30 years, and the kinds of questions that might come up uh, may not be the ones for which the justice was picked. So, you know, FDR can pick justices who he thinks are going to uphold the New Deal, but 25 years later, they're dealing with questions of desegregation. Um, First Amendment questions that were not the things that people were talking about in the 1930s uh, when FDR was was trying to select for someone. So there are things like that that also may come into play and contribute to to what we think of as drift uh, as well. Uh, I, I know that uh, uh, we, we we I brought you guys on to have a, a larger conversation, but just just uh, uh, to kind of uh, tack on to Ganesh's point there, it, it seemed like to me reading about it that the example of the Obamacare decision was less about this being a very meaty, well put together challenge to the constitutionality of, of Obamacare and rather something a little bit slapdash. So if the headlines are Kavanaugh saves Obamacare, technically, yes, he ruled uh, or, or, you know, was, was leaning toward a position that would not strike it down, but it would have more to do with the way that that case was put together than necessarily the merits of the law itself. Is that is that uh, uh, correct, Dan? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and there's a lot of context here. I mean, so one thing to be aware of is that this particular challenge just doesn't have broader buy-in from the conservative legal movement in the way that the original constitutional challenge does. Now, it does have the Trump administration agreeing with it, in which a lot of people found pretty surprising, and I'd say even shocking, um, that the Justice Department um, you know, agreed with the position of the challengers here, but it doesn't have buy-in um, in the same way from a lot of other uh, political actors, kind of commentators have not really provided a lot of um, support for the arguments. A lot of conservative commentators have described the argument as even frivolous. Um, and even Republican senators have been a little bit more cautious, uh, have not embraced it the way they embraced the prior challenge. And so I think that that in addition to kind of legal arguments that I think a lot of people think are pretty questionable, um, it has this feel, um, without getting too deep into the weeds of the argument, it has this real kind of feel of this kind of too clever gotcha argument um, that you sort of make sense at some level, but just doesn't really uh, pass the kind of smell test for a lot of people. Uh, and I think that's that's what's going on there. And I think that, you know, the Democrats made a strategic choice during the Barrett hearings to focus 
on the Affordable Care Act um, as their sort of political message, even though I think a lot of people recognized even at the time that it wasn't particularly likely that the Supreme Court was going to strike down the Affordable Care Act in this case in particular. A lot of the the issues just in general, not even beyond the political sense, and I think what you guys wanted to get to the heart of in your uh, uh, offerings on ways to reform it is the idea of legitimacy of the court, that the court needs to maintain an air of, uh, of unbiased authority so society's laws don't fall apart, that this is like an, an, an important element of it. And you made mention uh, before, Dan, that uh, that might be some of the impetus for the chief justice, John Roberts, appointed by George W. Bush to maybe tack a little bit left. Uh, Ganesh, let me ask you this. Is there a history to stuff like that, that that uh, for the sake of a, a balanced court, you will see a justice or a chief justice specifically find the the area that that needs to be filled in? And will we see Chief Justice uh, John Roberts be more of a reliable liberal vote going forward? So one of the things that's really striking about the court that we don't see because the court is so secretive just in general, but occasionally comes out when you read histories and every once in a while, while there'll be a uh, kind of journalistic account of some, by some investigative reporter who's been able to get access to, to former clerks or, or others, um, is that there's actually a lot of politics that goes on inside the court between the justices. Um, and, you know, Dan, Dan clerked on the, the court himself, so he may have some, some insights that he wants to share with us on this. But, but throughout history, the justices have, have been very careful about working together. Um, there's ones who try to build bridges across uh, ideologies. Um, chief justices have worked hard at various times in our history to try to get certain opinions to be unanimous so that the court can works forward and sends a signal to the entire country yeah. um, that's behind something. So th those kinds of things have happened. I, I think you know what a lot of people believe is that the chief justice is in particular very concerned about the legitimacy of the court uh, and that he wants the court to be something that um, has broad buy-in from the general public. And so, you know, people read cases coming down, the Obamacare case as, as one, maybe the most famous example um, in 2012, as the chief justice trying to thread that needle um, of, you know, being true to, to what he believes, but also uh, acknowledging where the country is and not trying to spark too much of a backlash uh, against the court specifically. Um, you know, I think going forward, we might see some of that, but one of the big differences from the last few years to, to now uh, is that if we have a 6-3 conservative court, um, one vote isn't enough. Uh, one vote, if it's just the chief justice, only gets you to 5-4. Yeah. Um, and so there's a big difference now with the 6-3 court where you would have to really have two justices who want to try to move the court in a different direction um, in order to see decisions that are not reliably conservative over time. So you know, I think over the last few decades, what we've seen is that middle point between liberal and conservative on the court has gotten more and more conservative. Yeah. You know, from Sandra Day O'Connor uh, to Justice Kennedy um, to potentially John Roberts, you know, is is a, is a move in a more conservative direction. And with 6-3, you would now need, you know, potentially Kavanaugh or Gorsuch in addition to uh, Roberts in order to to have a decision go in the direction of the liberals. Um, I think that seems more unlikely than than you know the five four cases of the last few decades. Let me let me ask this then. Uh, on top of the idea of legitimacy of the court, 
A thing that bothers me is that not only do we talk about the Supreme Court in a hyper-political context, which I think on some level is unavoidable, but in terms of the Senate and, and the House, it feels like they act like it as well, that, that they're the, the issues for which they will raise a ton of money on and, and base get out the vote drives on a Supreme Court case that may or may not happen. There does not seem to be the same kind of energy to, you know, make a law because that would be a thing that they can actually do. Is, is part of our Supreme Court illegitimacy or legitimacy crisis uh, the fact that we have politically canonized the idea that they are this collection of nine uh, super senators without any kind of term limits? Yeah, I think there's there's something to that for sure. Um, the idea that we've kind of outsourced too much of our governor, governance to the Supreme Court. We're asking them to really decide um, really, really weighty issues. You know, we're asking them, you know, can we have healthcare reform? Um, and this, you know, this this has been both the left and the right. I mean, you know, there's the, one of the, the issues that the left cares most about is abortion. And that's something that the Supreme Court has been the kind of chief policymaker on for, you know, going on half a century at this point. And uh, it does seem to me that the more we ask the court to do, the higher the stakes they're going to be around its membership, um, especially in a period of time when we're seeing significant gridlock uh, in other institutions. It's it's gotten basically impossible to amend the Constitution because of polarization. It's really hard to imagine getting, you know, all the state legislatures together um, that you would need to amend the Constitution. It's really hard even just to pass ordinary legislation uh, these days um, because the Senate is so gridlocked. Um, it's, things are very contentious in Congress. And so it seems like one of the only institutions that actually is really getting stuff done uh, is the court. <laughs> and it kind of makes sense in that environment that people really care a lot about its membership. Uh, Ganesh, do you think that that the the purpose of the Supreme Court has been been warped in, in the minds of, uh, of voters and maybe even D.C. itself? I think what's happened is over a few centuries, the Supreme Court has become a bigger and bigger part of policymaking and politics. And that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that's what's caused our legitimacy crisis now. You know, the Supreme Court at the beginning of the country um, was not the major player in day to day, month to month, year to year political battles. Uh, there was an occasional case here or there that was of, of bigger importance, but it really wasn't at the center of our politics in the way that it has become. Uh, so in, in the last half century and, and a little bit more than that. Um, so, so I think we've all moved to that place. And one of the hard questions is, how do you pull back from that? You know, how do you get to a place where the Supreme Court isn't as big of a player? And, you know, for a long time, what people said was, well, justices should just have more restraint. They should just inherently do less. Um, but, you know, justices are human. It's hard to hard to do that, especially when you have a lot of power. And so I think part of the move that you know Dan and I put forward in these uh, in these ideas is to try to design ways that help uh, rein in the court a little bit, um, you know, put a thumb on the scale in favor of having the political process work rather than always running to the courts when you lose a policy fight. Man, from your lips to God's ears, I I, I can I can only hope that at some point we are not looking at the Supreme Court as the the place where forever arguments happen and and yet they are as as fresh as possible because I think it it incentivizes the worst elements in politicians it, just the fact that they don't have to do 
anything, that everything rides on this, and and it may or may not even happen. There's not even, like, we, we don't know if th- this particular train is going to show up within the next 4, 8, 12 years. But please, vote and donate right now, because it is just that important, is... Something that I I hope 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 we can get uh, through, and and I think your guys' ideas are are really really smart. If, if at the end of the day you can't scream and yell about a court, if if based on your first idea you have no idea what the panel is, uh, <laughs> you have no idea what the case and what the panel is going to be. I think that that's that's a great 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 thing to think about, and we now have that in our heads thanks to our guests. Ganesh Sitaraman is a professor of law at Vanderbilt University and the author of The Great Democracy. Follow him on Twitter at Ganesh Sitaraman. And Daniel Epps is an associate professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis, former clerk for justice, Anthony Kennedy, and a nationally recognized expert on this subject. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Epps. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that'll wrap it up for us today. I want to thank everybody who wrote in theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Thanks to our guests talking about the Supreme Court. Again, if you'd like to follow us on social media, it is at px3tweets. Let's uh, go ahead and remind everybody that there is only one place where you can support this show and get your name read at the end of the program, and that is the Titanic $10 tier that everybody who I'm about to read went to TakePoliticsSeriously.com to get read. Uh, and and, and uh, we're not going to do the nicknames. We've had a, a little bit of a turnover over the last uh, a few weeks, obviously, with uh, the election wrapping up, so we're going to send out another survey to get everybody's nicknames again going forward. But here we go. Catherine, Jason, Paul, Katie, Rob, and Vote for Gloria Young 2024, Justin, Trump won 2020, Lord Generic Frenchman, Martin, Jacob, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Andres, Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Paul, Adam, David, Jacob, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Miranda Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, David, Brad, Richard, D. Laser, Chris, Joseph, Peter, Ed, the Goose, just another pilot, Middle Age Mike, Scale, the Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summers, J. Pink, Andrew, Maine, Matthew, and James. You want to get on their level? You head on over to take politics seriously. You get at the Titanic $10 tier. Remember, $3 gets you all the bonus episodes as well. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only program that dares to talk about
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.